Dr. Cottrell, thank you for taking the time tonight. Thank you for having me. All right. So Appreciate just there's no, no conception of misinformation, should there be any such thing. You're on your way to medical doctordom, but you have doctordoms in other areas. That's correct. All right. I have a PhD in finance, and uh, I'm actually in my first first year medical first year medical school. Right? Okay. Okay. Just good. Just started. Just started. Yeah. Just started. Just started. All right. And uh, we are going to talk about a wide variety of things to do with coronavirus. Uh, I normally do these updates solo, but uh, Paul Paul has a knack with the data and a knack with some of the more technical aspects of healthcare that is well worth. Him having uh, input here, and we will take questions, of course, and all of that kind of stuff tonight. But um, and we'll just wait for the show to get a little bit started. But we're going to tackle, I guess, it's a fairly challenging perspective that people have given us. And, you know, it's, it's a good thing. It's a good thing to be challenged in this kind of way. And the challenging perspective goes a little something like this. You fear-mongering rat bastards. Uh, you you told us it was going to be a massive calamity, that there'd be a giant smoking crater on the face of the planet where humanity used to reside. And now look what's happening. The hospitals are empty and we shut down everything for no reason. And look at Sweden and all of this kind of stuff. And listen, I appreciate that feedback. It's very, very good to circle back and figure out what went right, what went wrong uh, in predictions and so on, and to zoom out for the larger perspective. Now, before we get into the answer, well, the answer and answer to that kind of question, uh, I do want to talk about uh, a sort of larger perspective on this. So a lot of people, of course, when they're looking at statements of truth or falsehood, they look in particular at the political ramifications of these questions. In other words, since, as seems somewhat inevitable, governments are vastly overreaching their constitutional Bill of Rights authority in order to lock down society. And therefore, people are saying, well, that's bad. And therefore, anyone who said coronavirus was going to be terrible has contributed to the growth of fascism across the West. Now, you have to remember, of course, these two questions are unrelated. The danger of coronavirus is not related to government's response to it. And the people who are afraid of a big government, as Paul and I are, take no pleasure in the fact that coronavirus is dangerous and recognize, of course, that governments do use these kinds of dangers to expand their powers. But we do have to focus on the truth and facts and reality of the situation rather than judging epidemiological facts, medical facts, according to how bad people in government might interpret those facts to further their own power. And we have to kind of resolutely avoid political conclusions when it comes to the evaluation of scientific data. Otherwise, we're no better than climate change hysterics or the people who said we were all going to die from acid rain or the ozone layer exploding and, and so on. So I just wanted to give that perspective. So we, we will, I do want to talk with Paul about the political effects of SARS-CoV-2. But first and foremost, I do want to deal with the question of the danger. So I'll give you sort of a very brief overview, Paul, and then we'll take it from there. We'll take some questions. We'll talk about the political ramifications of what's going on. And welcome, of course, to everyone who's joining us here this evening. This is, uh, I believe, the most important conversation, not, not just about Corona, this, this conversation right here, right now, tonight, the most important conversation that we need to be having in, uh, in, in our common 
humanity. So, so Paul, some of the estimates were very high. Uh, Neil Ferguson from the Imperial College, who actually, I believe, was trained as a physicist, uh, gave all of these wild estimates of a half million dead in the UK. Funnily enough, he just resigned. I don't know if you heard about this. He no, just resigned. He resigned oh. because he broke quarantine to go and visit his married mistress. So all I can imagine is oh. she can, in fact, <laughs> suck a garden ball through. Or see, she can probably suck a golf ball through a garden hose. So obviously that was something very important for him to deal with. Um, I guess in the same way, it was pretty good for Cuomo to go bike riding and then claim that he was emerging from his basement for the first time. So, I mean, yeah, go ahead. I mean, that's just amazing. It's just amazing how CNN spun that, you know. And then how Tucker Carlson on on Fox, you know, you know, uh, you know, showed the truth on that because he talked to the actual guy, you know, that was on the and that he had the argument with when he broke yeah, the quarantine, yeah. and you know, wow. it's just it's amazing. It really is amazing. So, where do you sit relative to some of the estimates that you had talked about, not just in this show but online uh, on your website, which I'm not going to try and spell out here, but is in the show notes already. So where do you sit relative to your estimates from a month or two ago uh, versus where, where things are now? All right. It's, it's important to mention at the very be- at the very beginning that when, when people were making these estimates, we were dealing with a lot of unknown. We didn't know how shelter in place was going to smash the curve. We didn't know how um, um, the clinical presentations were going to show up in the United States because of the comorbidities. So overshooting, especially when you're dealing with a complex system, overshooting actually may be prudent. But you all, there's a point in time where you, you have to dial it back to a little bit more realistic scenario here. So a lot of the estimates were in the possibly millions of, of deaths. Um, the White House was estimating the low end, the, I guess their mid-range, I guess is what they called it, was around 250,000, 240,000 deaths. We're at about uh, 70 right now, 70,000 deaths, 71,000 deaths. Um, but that's a good thing being that wrong. I mean, you know, <laughs> I would much rather have 70,000 deaths than 250,000 deaths. So being wrong is a good thing. In, in, you know, from, from this perspective, um, for me, I was estimating at the high end, um, but we haven't gone through the secondary and tertiary waves of s- about 6.8, 6.9 million deaths because of the comorbidity. So there's still a lot of unknown here, but if we, if, if we just take a look at the scenario right now and we reassess and understand how it can be treated understanding that there's an ARDS and non-ARDS hypoxia component to this, that there's neurological. All right. Hang on, hang on, this. hang on. You got, you got all acronymy on us. So, oh, I'm sorry. The, a, the, a, the, the ARDS is um, uh, a, more of a pulmonary problem. That's why they were putting, that's why they were putting individuals on uh, intubation that they were using the ventilators or was it a non-pulmonary disease where, intubation would actually hurt um, the patient more. So the death rate started to go, going down when they stopped doing the intubations. They stopped using the ventilators. And this comes in with Dr. Um, 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 Sidel, Kyle Sidel, 
where he kept on, you know, the famous video that I think was taken down actually, but he was, he's the, he was a ICO, I, an ICU doctor where he basically was saying, this is not ARDS. This looks like it's some sort of elevation disease, hypoxia kind of thing. So that led people down this non-ARDS route. All right. Acute respiratory distress syndrome is what it stands for. So, um, so we have a better, the whole point here is, is that we have a better idea of what the, the clinical presentation is in the United States and a little bit better idea on how to treat them. We don't have a cure, but some cases can handle hydroxychloroquine with the Z-Pack and in zinc. Some can't. We're getting closer to maybe, you know, having remdesivir on the market. So we're getting better at seeing how to manage this. So the, the rates of death are going down because of, of that, plus the shelter in place. Plus, I think people are a little bit more aware that if you do have something, you need to take care of it. Um, and hopefully, people like you and I, who have been spreading the word out there, boost your immune system. Hopefully, you know, they, they listened and, you know, and they and increased their immune system, and that helps. Um, just a shout out to Cliff High, you know, he has a really neat idea in terms of vitamin D. If you take a look at the East Coast and the number of deaths, they're highly in the tri-state area plus Pennsylvania. The majority of the deaths are there compared to the rest of the country. So there's this disparity between a little bit of the higher density areas of the United States, and then let's say more suburbia areas of the United States or even the, the rural area. So we, we had a, uh, a cookie cutter approach with an unknown. And I think at that time it was prudent to do that, but it's now time to reassess and, and evaluate that maybe a cookie cutter approach doesn't make sense. But the death rates are gonna go down for a multitude of reasons. The death rate is much lower than prediction because of the better care, the better preparation. We were overprepared in New York State, which is a good thing. I'd rather have empty tents in Central Park than have it overflowing with dead bodies. You know, it means that we we were ahead of the curve, which is a good thing. It'll cost some money, but at least we have supplies and stuff that we can move to other states that need it. That's you know. So that's, that's, that's a good thing to have. All right. So um, in addition to the death rate going down is, is that more and more people will be getting this disease and not have um, severe symptoms, which was predicted because a lot of these models were saying half the population in the United States were, was going to get COVID-19. All right. Well, that's about 165 million people. All right, we're still not past the second tertiary wave. You know, it, those predictions were over an 18 month period. But let's just say right now, we probably have, we probably have way more than 1.2 million than, than the actual confirmed by RT-PCR testing. All right, it's only saying 1.2. It's, it's probably in the tens of millions, all right? We won't know that unless we tested for the antibody. You mean, sorry, uh, it's in the tens of millions of the people who've already got it? Yeah, yeah. But do yeah. you mean the people who've got it in the incubation period or the people who've got it and have gone through the symptomology? Uh, uh, both. Right, you can, right. you, you're going to have, you're going to, you're going to have people, I mean, there's, there's a lot of data 
saying that this probably was starting to show show signs in November in the United States. All right, not just and in New York for sure, we had above flu-like symptoms starting December eighteenth. Oh, well, Sweden so, has come out and said that they think they might have had it in November. Yeah, well, that's starting to make sense. So, so, um, so people will have antibodies, and they they didn't present the severe signs, which is part of the the modeling was saying that the severe signs was only going to be about one eighth of the of the um, of the number of people. So, there's probably an awful lot, tens of millions that ha that have an antibody had been exposed, but didn't really realize it. And they just thought it was cold. But that doesn't mean it isn't, a, it, it's not severe and that it could hurt people with comorbidities or age. As I shared with you, evidence that it's not the flu through a CT scan. All right. Now this is a severe case. Oh, this is the one you emailed me, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, we, yeah. Well, I'm not going to do the old share the screen technology here, but um, let me just have a look here. Tell people a little bit about what we're going to have a look uh, at, okay, so and I'll sort of bring a, it up. This is, a C, this, is a C, this is a CT scan cutting right through near the heart. All right. The level here of the heart, go. and here it's looking go. at the lungs. It's looking at the lungs. I can't zoom in because i got a fixed camera, okay. fixed frame, right. a fixed lens that, that, camera. But That's good. That's good. So you should be seeing pretty much all black in there. And all that white area near the bottom is is the, the lung the big the big white spot in the center at the top is the heart okay and uh, you mean this thing here? all that spec Oops. The, the big yeah that's yeah, yeah. the heart got it well now we lost your screen i lost back. your screen right. because you touched. okay so all these speckles that you're seeing or jewels that is that is the disease the the destruction that's taking place in the air sacs this is what's called right. the, is it the ground still, glass phenomenon yes and this this is filled with fluid and and uh, dead tissue and, and 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 full of cytokines and all this. This is part. This is the reason why people are having a hard time breathing. This does not happen with the normal flu. So it's not the flu. All right. And that, in that particular case, it's a, a young female. All right. So it's not an an elderly person, and they didn't have comorbidities. So the even though if you do have comorbidities or you are elderly, you have a higher risk, but there are individuals that are younger, that are healthy, quote healthy, but do get a severe case of it. But with that said, the far majority of the individuals will not have these types of presentations. So we as a society, when we're looking at the ethics of this, we have to take care of these individuals that do get sick, but we can't lock down the whole world and destroy people's incomes and livelihoods. We have to take risks. There's a point in time where you just have to go, okay, we have some knowledge of what's going on. Now we're gonna move forward, take the risk of rebooting our economies and, and, and trying to live our lives not fearfully, but smart. We have to live smart, but we just not fearfully and just move on and let the engineers, the scientists, the doctors figure the answer. But it's a communal effort that if you do have someone that you know that needs help, that in our own ways, we can help them. 
that's that, that whole communal aspect of, of, of health. My concern is that if too many people are fearful, then we're, our, our democracies are at risk and we're gonna, we're gonna rapidly move into a socialism because we won't have functioning capitalism in, in, our, in our democracies. So, that, so it's not just the disease, the Wuhan virus or the CCP virus or whatever you want to call it, all right? It's, it's also a disease of the destruction of our civil liberties and in, uh, in, in, in our, our economies. We have, we have to, we have to balance a multiple, a multitude of, of variables together. And I don't want people to be fearful, the corona but I do think, I do think that even though we do have low death rates, we have to look at it from the perspective of that there is an acute phase and there's a chronic phase. All right. And a lot of people that, that maybe aren't familiar with HIV, it's it has an acute phase that lasts for about six months and then it dies down and it goes dormant for about eight years. And then it flares back up again. And the AIDS syndrome, the, the diseases that come from AIDS is because of this immune suppression from the HIV virus and rare, rare diseases start to pop up. Now, people that were dying in 1984 or 85 from AIDS, they contracted HIV-1 back in 74 or 75. So there was an acute phase and, then, and, and there is a, 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 um, a, a chronic phase. My concern here is that if, if we're dealing with a bioweapon, wouldn't it behoove you, if you're a weapon specialist, to have an acute phase of the disease and a chronic phase of the disease to weaken your enemy. So I think we are dealing with a bioweapon. I, on my channel, I've said it, and even on yours, the details of what happened, being developed in the lab for scientific purposes, it gains additional function. It's further developed at Fort Detrick. They closed down the weapons program at Fort Detrick. Then it, it, it spins off to Wuhan and, and, and funded by our, 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 our friend Fauci over, over, over at the uh, Wuhan uh, uh, Virology Department at the P4 lab. And that gains additional function and then it leaks out. We don't know exactly how it leaked out. That's, that's still left for interpretation. But it leaks out and it's infecting people. So we have a disease, it's a weapon, that probably has an acute phase, which is what we're seeing right now, and a chronic phase that we don't know about. But it doesn't mean that we should be scared and let our constitutional freedoms go to the wayside. I mean, we, 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 can, we can handle this. Because what's interesting is, is that through chaos, I think the weapon specialists thought it would have been a lot worse. But they, never, they weren't able to ever test it in the real world at this level. They could test it maybe in a small lab with a bunch of different animals or maybe uh, a contained, you know, uh, a village, very small village or something, but not at the world level with so many different phenotypes and different weather patterns and all that, all so many different variables that I think nature is so much more robust that it's 
that is one of the tools in our toolbox to be able to have the confidence to go out into the public square, still live your life, but you have to be smart about it. And you have to care for the people that do have these core morbidities that might catch these diseases and get the, you know, the disease in their lung that you just showed on the CT scan. So we have to care for our neighbor. But, but I, I'm, concerned about, I'm concerned about the chronic phase. But specific to your question, even though I was kind of long-winded, the, the death rates are much lower than they were predicted. All right? But that's a good thing. But we don't know about the chronic phase, the secondary wave. What does that mean? And when it, if it goes dormant, does it pop up in five years? We don't know. We do know that it affects the red blood cells through the through CD147 pathway that I talked about before, that there, there's pinballing that I was worried about. It's not just the ACE2 receptor, the multiple receptors. So it's, infect, it's infecting the, the red blood cells. This is the non-ARDS component that, that Dr. Kyle Sedell was talking about. But it's also infecting the T cells. And when you start infecting the T cells, what are the long-term term effects of that? These, sometimes those T cells go into G0. They're memory cells, so they stay dormant. Well, what happens when they, go, they get activated? That means a new viral load starts to get produced? Is there something about this virus that we don't know about that suppresses the immune system for a long duration, very similar to an AIDS-like phenomena? We don't know. So... The, I'm just being realistic here. I'm not well, trying so to this scare is, yeah, people. This is the, uh, so this is the challenge around, you know, the flu crew, right? The people who say it's the crew. So I'll give some, I'll put all the sources to this below. But uh, so uh, there are some Reddit threads where COVID-19 patients from around the world, many of them young men, shared their struggles with a virus they just couldn't seem to shake. Some patients who were six or seven weeks post-confirmation, meaning they probably had contracted the virus two months earlier, possibly even longer, complained of symptoms coming back in waves, while others complained that they were still testing positive for the virus weeks after their symptoms disappeared. Though rare, these cases have alarmed researchers who fear that some patients might become chronic carriers of the virus. And the scientists leading China's response to the outbreak are particularly concerned about dozens of apparently chronic patients in Hubei who still haven't cleared the virus, even as the region, which was bolted shut during the outbreak crisis, slowly reopens to the outside world. So typically patients in, infected with SARS-CoV-2 will test negative on nucleic acid throat swabs roughly 20 days after detection. For a small number of patients, throat swabs will produce positive tests for more than 40 days. Some patients are still producing positive swabs despite being infected in the first wave of patients. Now, that's a challenge. Now, here's another one that uh, is from the, um, the Washington Post. A mysterious blood clotting complication is killing coronavirus patients. Once thought a relatively straightforward respiratory virus, COVID-19 is proving to be much more frightening. And just the beginning of the article goes, uh, Craig Coopersmith was up early that morning, as usual, and typed his daily inquiry into his phone. Good morning, Team COVID, he wrote. Asking for updates from the ICU team leaders working across 10 hospitals in the Emory University Health System in Atlanta. One doctor replied that one of his patients had a strange blood problem. Despite being put on anticoagulants, the patient was still developing 
Klotz, a second said she thinks she had seen something similar, and a third. Soon every person on the text chat had reported the same thing. That's when we knew we had a huge problem, said Cooper Smith, the critical care surgeon. As he checked with his counterparts at other medical centers, he became increasingly alarmed. It was in as many as 20, 30, or 40 percent of their patients. One month ago, when the country went into lockdown to prepare for the first wave of coronavirus cases, many doctors felt confident they knew what they were dealing with. Based on early reports, COVID-19 appeared to be a standard variety respiratory virus, albeit a contagious and lethal bomb with no vaccine and no treatment. They've since seen how COVID-19 attacks not only the lungs, but also the kidneys, heart, intestines, liver, and brain. And... Increasingly, doctors are also reporting bizarre, unsettling cases that don't seem to follow any of the textbooks they've trained on. Patients with startlingly low oxygen levels, so low that they would normally be unconscious on their death, talking and swiping on their phones. Asymptomatic pregnant women suddenly in cardiac arrest. Patients who, by all conventional measures, seem to have mild diseases deteriorating within minutes and dying at home. And blood clots, blood clots when the red liquid turns gel-like, appear to be the opposite of what occurs in Ebola as Ebola was hemorrhagic fevers and so on, uncontrolled bleeding. Autopsies have shown some people's lungs fill with hundreds of micro-clots. Errant blood clots of a larger size can break off and travel to the brain or heart, causing a stroke or heart attack. This was on a recently a Broadway actor named Nick Cordero, who's 41, had his right leg amputated after being infected with the novel coronavirus and suffering from clots that blocked blood from getting to his nose. And they actually can see the clots forming in real time when they go in to try and break them up. And that is obviously uh, very, very bad. And another report says uh, remdesivir is probably worthless. A trauma surgeon exposes drug companies shenanigans. And from the Hill, uh, this uh, just came out a couple of days ago, infectious disease research warns coronavirus pandemic could last two Years, a report recently released from the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy, SIDRAP at the University of Minnesota, said that due to the coronavirus's ability to spread among people who appear to be asymptomatic, it may be harder to control than flu outbreaks or other pandemics. The virus caught the global community off guard and its future course is still highly unpredictable. There is no crystal ball to tell us what the future holds and what the end game for controlling this pandemic will be. The report says, so in the first scenario, small peaks of coronavirus outbreaks continue over a one to two year period that diminish in 2021, although the waves may be different in separate areas. In the second scenario, a larger coronavirus wave in the fall or winter of 2020 follows the first wave of the virus, resulting in more waves in 2021. In the final category, the first wave of the virus in 2020 is followed by a slow burn of ongoing cases without a clear wave pattern. Researchers say in the report that based upon their assessment of eight major pandemics that have occurred since the early 1700s and the lack of immunity to the coronavirus around the world, among other factors, the length of the coronavirus pandemic will likely be 18 to 24 months as herd immunity gradually develops in the human population. Uh, That's, of course, when enough of the population becomes immune, either through recovering from an infection or some magical inoculation that it can't really spread. But that means 60 to 70 percent of people may need to be immune to reach a critical threshold of herd immunity to halt the pandemic. So Mike Osterholm said this thing's not going to stop until it infects 60 to 70 percent of people. The idea that this is going to be done soon defies microbiology. And again, I will put those uh, links below. I just wanted to check in because last time I was doing a show, 
Um, I did have Potato Cam 101, although of course it looks lovely here, and I was working with the broadcaster to see if we could solve that. And if you could just let me know in the chat if I am getting um, video across that is not too Potato Cammy, uh, just let me know. And uh, we'll go on from there. I could just check on my second browser, but I'm afraid of touching the bandwidth. All right, I will go and check. People are chatting with each other. That's good. It's good to have this kind of community going on. All right, because otherwise I could leave and come back, and uh, that seems to solve the uh, the potato cam issue. So let me just see that. It's good to have this kind of community going on. Yeah, I'm looking a little bit uh, blocky there, so let me just um, remove some stream. Have myself back in, and I'll just check the refresh there. Yeah, nearly 100% potato, right? Yeah, I don't know why that's... Uh, I do not know why that is occurring. Um... Let's see here, because no. otherwise I could leave and come back. Let me just see if it comes back. Minecraft quality, yeah. I don't know what's going on with that. It looked like Ed Harris's blurry son. Yeah, it's Minecraft, and uh, <laughs> that seems to solve the. Uh, let me just see. I don't know why that's. Uh, I do not know why that is occurring. Well, it could be. It could um, be the Matrix. See here. <laughs> well, it's I have. I mean, I have a local camera. Which I guess I'll, well, it could be. I guess I'll just have to use a lo my local camera recording afterwards instead. Gradually, quality gradually getting better. It looks beautiful on my screen for for whatever that's worth. <laughs> for whatever that's worth. Um, anyway, well, we'll just have to we'll have to struggle on, and uh, I'll fix it. I'll fix it in post, as they say. But I guess I'll have to find some other place than Streamyard, which does not seem to be handling my camera very well. Even though I did go low def. All right. Um, Turn off your tab. No, it's a funny thing. I have. Uh... So, yeah, go ahead. To, to expound on what you were saying, I mean, it's it, this is evidence of what I was saying that this is a blood disease, and there is this latency component, but we don't know what's the dynamics of that. So we're back to we know more about this disease than we did in February for sure, but there is a lot of unknown about this chronic phase. The chronic phase may be only one year, maybe only eight months, could be five years. If it's longer, it's probably going to manifest into serious diseases like cancer. If it's only a, you know, a few more months, then you know we're you know we're talking about more lung damage, maybe you know um, you know other organ failure, more sepsis-oriented type diseases. Um, but it's there. There's definitely something going awry in the the T cell, and we need to understand what that is. But that again, that we're we're balancing. We can't allow another four trillion dollars of our economy to go up in smoke um, on fear. You know, the far majority of the country is suburbia not not like new york so um the chances of having big waves of death or even big waves of infection in the far majority of the country is somewhat low especially in the midwest but areas like california and areas like new york boston um having different protocols may be you know, may, may be prudent. Right. 
Right. There was one other thing that I wanted to mention as well. Uh, this uh, was, do you remember the, um, the Diamond Princess cruise ship passengers? So chest computer tomography imaging performed on patients aboard the Diamond Princess cruise ship revealed lung abnormalities between asymptomatic and symptomatic patients with COVID-19. So imaging experts from Japan retrospectively looked at the scan data from more than 100 individuals with the coronavirus who were aboard the quarantine ship in February. The, fi- uh, the virus, sorry, the findings published in radiology cardiothoracic imaging showed abnormalities in patients both with and without virus symptoms. The author said, although lung parenchymal and airway abnormalities were more frequent in symptomatically than asymptomatic cases, noticeably we found lung parenchymal changes on CT in up to 54% of the asymptomatic cases. So even if you're asymptomatic, there does seem to be some, I mean, real significant challenges to to your body as a whole. And this is why this uh, flu stuff. And the other thing I wanted to mention too was that, and I got this from Scott Adams. Uh, He did a, a periscope, I think it was yesterday. And he was talking about how, you know, we hear this sort of in the U.S., 50 to 80,000 people uh, a year dying of the flu. Now, it turns out, of course, that that doesn't come from uh, anything to do with actual stuff that comes off the death certificates. What that is, is uh, basically a, um, uh, an algorithm, a calculation, an estimate. And... If you actually look at the numbers of people who are confirmed to have died from the flu, and look, you can be sick with other stuff and the flu finishes you off. Come on. You know, that's like if you have food poisoning and somebody puts a bullet through your head, okay, there's, there's a comorbidity there called food poisoning, but you kind of got to look at the bullet uh, as well, right? And so um, if you look at the actual numbers, it's between 4,000 and 15,000 probably towards the lower end. I mean, if we look at these two extremes, right? 4,000 versus versus 80,000, well, that's 20 times difference. Now, so people can say, okay, well, so it's good that people aren't dying as much of the flu. Sure, okay, that's great. But you understand that it makes SARS-CoV-2 statistically much more dangerous because the fewer people who are dying from the flu, then because more people are dying from SARS-CoV-2, it means that SARS-CoV-2 is multiple times more dangerous than the flu than may have been previously thought. To take an extreme example, if the numbers of flu victims are one, well, 5% of the, uh, the claimed figure, you know, 4,000 versus 80,000, well, then the basic reality is when you compare that tiny slice to the larger death count of SARS-CoV-2, we're looking at a much more dangerous virus than we originally thought. So that seems to me uh, kind of important and not much mentioned these days. Well, I, I, like, I, I like putting things into context so people understand. We lost in Korea about 33,000 uh, deaths. Are you still there? Yeah, sorry. I just was trying right. to fix so, the so, camera. So, thing you down. know, just, just, just to put in, things into context, we, in combat deaths in Korea, we were about 33,000. Vietnam, it was around, um, I think it was 47,000 combat deaths. Now we're at 70,000. The, Feder- the Confederates in the Civil War, the U.S. Civil War, in, you know, 1860, in 1861 to 1864, the Confederates lost 74,000 
combat. We're approaching death rates that we saw at the Civil War. And that was over a four-year period, and this has only been over a two-and-a-half-month period. So I, I like putting it in terms of casualties, in terms of war, because I think that, that, uh, that really shines a light on this is not a natural phenomenon. War is not a natural phenomenon. It's, it's, it's somewhat idiosyncratic, all right? And the flu is somewhat of a natural phenomenon. Right? It's every year, it, you know, it, it comes and going, yes, there's people that die and it, any, even one death is too many, you know, but um, if you, to your point about the modeling, it's even worse when you, when they say, well, it's about 15 million or 25 million that, that they get the flu. <laughs> they don't test that. They don't have enough test kits for that to make that statement. It's extrapolated. So they don't know. So the people that say, Oh, you know, the flu, you're comparing it to the flu numbers. Well, you're comparing it to a number that is a modeled number. You don't know what the real, the real flu rates are because it's, it's a projection. It's a statistical projection. They, they, they don't test 25 million people if they have flu or not. The doctor sees you coughing. They don't do a flu test. They just, you know, they, they, you know, they say, eh, probably it's the flu season. You got a, you know, you got a cold or the flu and go home and, you know, rest up and, you know, take some vitamin C and, and, you know, call me in two, you know, in a week. I, that's how it's all written up. And unless you're like dying from it, you know, most people don't, aren't coughing up a lung while they have a flu, you know, they have, you know, some bad symptoms, but that's it. Maybe some diarrhea. That's about it. Right. So. It, but they don't test for it. Have you ever been tested for the flu? I mean, everyone's had the flu, but no, no, I've never been tested for the flu. So how do they really know how many people have the flu? It's a statistical projection. That's it. All right. Well, okay. So, so they, sorry to interrupt, but let's let's talk a little bit about this because one of the pushbacks against the numbers are like the death rate, right? Because I don't think people are really getting a sense of where the death rate is as far as what is measurable now. As far as what is measurable now, uh, the death rate is, uh, you know, kind of scary. And even the people who are like, oh, it's only 1%, 1%, okay. You know, you know, the, the old, uh, uh, you've got a, um, uh, you've got a uh, M&M bowl with 100 M&Ms in it. Only one of them contains strychnine. It's like, that's still not a very relaxing snack to be, uh, to be partaking in. But these are some big ass scary numbers and i don't know that people are really getting a strong sense of what what it is right so let me let me give people some numbers here right so this is as of yesterday coronavirus death rates in countries with confirmed deaths of over uh, and over 1000 reported cases right this is by sorry this is by today may 5th so the highest death rate is in belgium in belgium which is a death rate of 15.76% Death rate, it's a simple calc, right? Confirmed cases, number of deaths, right? It's the ratio, right? Uh, next is the United Kingdom. 190,584 cases, 28,734 deaths. That's a death rate of over 15%. Coming in just under 15% in France, 13.72%. In Italy, Netherlands, 12.47%. Sweden, 12.19%. Hungary, 11.84%. Spain, 11.66%. Algeria, 10 And we can go down and go down. Uh, Canada, where I live, 6.46%. And the United States is at 
5%. Now, of course, people are saying, and I get where they're coming from, and it's worth having the discussion. It really is, right? They're saying, look, I mean, but so many people have had this thing who haven't complained, who haven't talked about it, that if you divide not by the confirmed cases, not by the tested and confirmed cases, although I get some of those are probably rule of thumb estimates, but if you look at... I mean, it's kind of simple, right? So if you have a thousand people who get sick and 150 die, there's your 15%. If it turns out another thousand people got sick that you know, don't know about, it's actually 7.5%. Like I get all of that, right? But I don't have any proof for this, but I'm just going on what I've heard, what I've said, what I've seen. So it's not scientific, but I think a lot of people, if they feel really sick during a pandemic, they're going to make a call. And the health advisors are going to say, for God's sakes, go in and get yourself tested, right? That you've got to do, you've got to go in and get yourself tested. And so I don't know that there are a lot of people who wake up in the middle of a pandemic that is going to interfere with your breathing. I don't know that a lot of people wake up feeling like Sally the ass element is squatting on their chest, not letting them breathe, and just like, I'm going to, I'm going to walk it off. I'm, I'm not going to call anyone. I'm just going to tough it out, you know, like Willie the Gardener style, right? So I think that the people who do have symptoms are, calling. And if you call, and I know this from people I, I've talked to, uh, if you call, they will say, come in for a test. And so I don't know. Of course, there could be some people who are completely asymptomatic. But here's the thing. If you're asymptomatic and you're home with your wife or your kids or whatever, right? Let's say you, you've got this thing, but it doesn't do you that much damage, or maybe you don't even notice it at all. It's probably not the case that everyone in your household is the same way. So what's going to happen is you're going to infect your wife, you're going to infect your kids. One of them is going to develop symptoms at some point. And then what happens? Well, you're all going to get tested, right? Because if you're living with someone and they're sick, I would imagine that you are also going to get tested yourself. So I don't know that there's a big wide net of people out there who are so asymptomatic, they've never called, they've never gotten tested. Yeah, there's a backlog of tests. I get that. I and I'm not saying that that's insignificant, but I can't imagine that there are all these people out there who just, they have no symptoms. Everyone around them is asymptomatic. They just have no idea that they've got this kind of uh, illness and have never been tested and yet they've come and gone. And, you know, I guess, well, you could test for antibodies later and so on. It doesn't seem to, it's not scientific, I get that. But my sort of gut sense sniff test is I don't think that there's massive swaths of people out there who've had it and haven't even noticed and they've infected people around them and those people haven't even noticed. I just doesn't seem to me to, to be the case because, I mean, I've, I've certainly heard of, of, and read reports, I'm sure of you have, of people who are like, oh man, this thing knocked me out for nine days, you know, and I'm, I'm better now, but man, that was really rough. I don't know. I, I'm, I could be wrong, of course. I just don't see that there's big swaths of people out there who've got it, who didn't uh, get sick, who didn't, no one around them got sick, they never got tested, and that could crush the death rates down. I, you know, one way to look at it, and this is just, just one way, you know, one perspective, is that if there are more people that are, quote, asymptomatic, that will develop develop symptoms at least at the acute phase. Is this, and it's a question, it's a research question, is this representing that there is a chronic thing component to it? That it lays dormant and that for some people they just don't 
present the acute phase of it. That's one way to look at it. The other way to look at it is nature is much more robust than we originally thought. When we were modeling the actual potential progression of this and that it just didn't spread as well that we as we thought and that shelter in place probably had a big part to play in that especially in new york now the question is when we get out of shelter in place and we see a reinfection if we see a reinfection then um then you know this thing is actually more virulent than what the current data is showing. And it's leaning towards some of the more higher predictive numbers that were stated in, in, in mid-February. We don't know, we haven't done that experiment. We will be soon, <laughs> you know, we'll be getting out of shelter in place for, for some states, it's you know, gonna be May 15th and others it's you know, the 30th of May and, and some in, in, uh, in June. But when we do do this grand experiment, we'll know if there's going to be reinfection because of getting out of shelter in place. Um, I see your point that there's no way there could be that many people that are asymptomatic. And everyone um, around them is asymptomatic. Right, right, right. Now, what's interesting is, is that one of the first cases that called into my show it was a, a father who had a son that, that, that had the, uh, neurological presentations of this coronavirus. This was in Florida. This is early, wait, early February. And the doctors didn't know how to treat it. They didn't know what, the, because it wasn't known that this was neurological. It was more like, well, this is it's supposed to be pulmonary. But now there are quite a few people that have the neurological problem. But um, the child eventually got well, um, but it took many weeks he was only like eight, eight, nine years old. Um, the father did contract it. Um, so, but the presentation within the family as it was going was different. My understanding is the child had the worst case, the longest case of it. Now there could have been a lot of different reasons why it could be, they didn't know at the early, those early days, how to even treat the thing because they didn't know what they were dealing with. Um, so the CDC guidelines are, are different, but you're right. There's you, you can't. There's no way you're going to have a whole family asymptomatic. I mean, you're going to have, or even in a community. You know, when you're walking around, you're asymptomatic. You're talking to you know the butcher and the candlestick maker, and you know, and eventually someone in that community is going to get sick. To have the whole community asymptomatic is just ridiculous. You're going to have a small percentage that are asymptomatic, maybe five percent, maybe five percent is actually too high when you're talking about the asymptomatic cases. But when you're talking about over a 18 month period, you're going to start seeing more and more individuals having antibodies somehow. You know, you can create an antibody um, and not and not have that much viral load and not show the you know symptoms. All right, and you 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 expel that that virus that virus relatively easy, and you have a, a you have some trace amounts of antibody. In, in your serum, while others may have had huge infections and have lots of antibodies. So I, I don't think we really have enough data to say who and what regions of the country have these antibodies, um, you know, at what concentrations, you know, how long does the antibodies stay in, stay in the body? 
You know, what's the half-life of this? You know, this is, there's a lot of unknown there. We don't know. I mean, just because you have an antibody doesn't mean that you have enough of it, that your body can produce enough of it because this thing's infecting the T cells. Who knows what if it's infecting B cells or not? We don't know that. But, you know, T cells are a major component of the immune system. You know, so, um, you know, long-term, when you get, let's say, reinfected with the a mutation of it in next season, what happens? We don't know. We haven't been down that road. I did find a little bit more. So doctors around the world are noting a raft of clotting-related disorders. This is related to what I said before. From benign skin lesions on the feet, sometimes called COVID toe, to life-threatening strokes and blood vessel blockages. Ominously, if dangerous clots go untreated, they may manifest days to months after respiratory symptoms have resolved. This is Michael Levy, Chief of Pulmonary, sorry, Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Medicine, the Warren Albert School of Medicine at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island, says the clotting phenomenon is, quote, probably the most important thing that's emerged over the last perhaps month or two. Now, infections in general can raise the risk of clotting. 1918 Spanish flu, which is another novel flu virus, a novel coronavirus, killed some 50 million people worldwide, was also linked to downstream damage from clots that would end lives dramatically. So that's not, that's not, a, that's not a flu symptom. And no, that no, is no, exactly something to remember. And, 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 so, and, and what's, what, what's interesting here is, is a lot of diseases will present themselves as uh, a PNS, uh, uh, peripheral nervous system disorders. So um, just recently in my uh, seminar class, uh, we were presenting different research. For me, I was presenting actually um, an autoimmune system disorder, but the professor um, provided information about COVID-19 autoimmune published paper. I think it was out of uh, Journal of Virology. Um, and it was talking about the different, the different pathways that it could take for, for presentation, clinical presentation. And so we were talking about this discoloring of the fingers and the toes. Was it more because of, of, uh, the dermis? It, was it more of a skin disorder or was it PNS and it's PNS. It's not skin disorder. What's happening is, is that people don't realize that you have little, I mean, obviously, you know, we can feel on, the, on our, on our, on our skin, right? People touch or you get burned. Well, we have nerve endings there. Well, so this is part of your peripheral nervous system, but when you get infection, when you get an infection, sometimes you're creating um, antibodies and those antibodies may actually attack the myelin of the, uh, the axon of these, of these nerves. Um, we don't know exactly the mechanism for COVID-19 disease, but this, what you're stating here, um, there was this debate about a week ago. Is it, is it more of a skin disorder or is it a PNS disorder? And it's looking as if it's, it's a PNS disorder similar to um, 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 let's say uh, like a lupus, like an autoimmune kind of thing. There's an, uh, there's, there's, it's something is, what's strange about this disease is that there's an, uh, there seems to be an autoimmune component 
that's attacking the nervous system. There seems to be a, a, um, a, a blood component that's attacking the, the red blood cells and the T cells. So it's, um, it's, it's not the flu. That's the thing. But people just keep on looking at death, death numbers. And that's not the, you, you got to look at the whole, the whole mosaic. You know, the clinical presentation isn't showing it's just the flu. Let's look a little bit at two other aspects of health that I think are underreported upon. So first, vitamin D, D, and the second is isolation. People, you know, we're social animals. As I said before, we're dogs, not cats. So being outside in the sunshine is very, very important to your health. I think one of the reasons why places like New York are seeing such high cases is, you know, vitamin D deficiency and compromise and so on. So this is from Canada's Global Mail. To date, 312 detailed studies have been published about clusters of coronavirus infections. There is not one single case of infection by casual contact outdoors. So do not be afraid of the big blue room with the people in it. Go and, uh, and talk to people. That's uh, really important. And here's another one. Um, this is Boris Johnson advisor reports isolation imposed by lockdown is damaging to health of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Stephen Reicher, a behavioral scientist, says, and I quote, the problem with lockdown is being cut off from people is bad psychologically and physically. So just staying home, staring at the screen. Okay, now it's the big exception like this, this particular call. But staying home, staring at the screen, not going outside, not getting your fresh air, not getting your exercise, not getting your vitamin D and not having social contact, which I guess. So some people have it, of course, they have the home with family and, and so on. But um, and hopefully that's a positive thing for most people. But of course, people who live alone, uh, you know, smoking, um, uh, isolation and sitting are the new smoking. <laughs> and so isolation plus sitting is not good for you. It's why I try to stand when I do these shows. But there's stuff you can do to sort of shore up your, your immune system um, that, that can really help. And, you know, one of those things is just getting outside and facing that big blue ball in the sky for a while. Absolutely. No, I, I, you're right. You know, and so when people start getting out after shelter in place across the country, the sad thing is, is that our immune system has been somewhat weakened because of shelter in place. Even mm. though shelter in place was supposed to help you, it may have weakened us to a certain percentage where when, when we're trying to fight pathogens, whatever they are, we don't have as much energy to fight that. Um, but once we start moving around and, and start getting, you know, sunlight and, and supplementation and all that, that your immune system will bounce back. But, um, it, there's also a depression component. I mean, a lot of people don't talk about it. I, I've, I've dedicated three shows on my channel about the psychological component of this, the fear, you know, bringing down your immune system. You know, you're with your family all the time and, you know, you know, some families are loving families, some families are not. And, you know, and there's that stress component that, 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 that comes about. Um, so this whole, this, this whole thing is not just the immune system and your pulmonary system. It's also the, the psychology of this that, is, that either gives you better health or, or weakens your health. Um, I'll tell you a funny story. Sorry loneliness. Lo loneliness is also a big one. Loneliness yeah, is bad. Go ahead. Yeah, no, it's, and this is, this is a story. So this is, you know, 
I know some people think all of this is story time from us because neither of us are epidemiologists, but, <laughs> you know, the epidemiologists with their crazy apocalyptic spreadsheets have not been super helpful in terms of preparing people. But here's a funny thing. So I haven't been far. I mean, I've been outside, but I haven't been far. I had to go into, uh, into I say into town, right? I'm sort of living in the town, but I had to go to stores yesterday. And I mean, I've been spending a lot of time reading. I've been spending a lot of time looking at graphs. I've been spending a lot of time trying to wrap my head around this kind of stuff. And, you know, there's the abstract and then there's the real. And the abstract is really important. You have to have the blueprint before you have the bridge. I get all of that. But it's one thing to have the blueprint. It's another thing to see this Monty Python bridge of doom that we're living in. Because I went out and it really is like Wuhan-style ghost town out there. I mean, it's still it's a, a surprising number of cars. I guess people are just going to get the groceries and stuff like that. But parking lots are empty. I mean, if you're not going to Walmart, like the parking lots are empty. The, the, the stores have like, some of them have this like tape in front of them. It looks like a police line. And everything's a drive-through and everyone's nervous and it's very, very quiet. The air smells good, which is sort of an un, unexpected byproduct. I had to go and pick something up from a store and... I went into the store, but you couldn't go into the store. They had kind of fenced it off with these big, I mean, almost looked like bulletproof glass. And then I had to pick something else up, and um, I, I wasn't allowed to tip, because to tip, you actually have to touch the, you can only wave your, your card, right? You couldn't, you couldn't tip, because they don't want you touching any buttons, right? And it sounds ridiculous, because again, I've been talking about this stuff since January, but really being out there and staring at this tumbleweed wasteland of a post-Chinese communist virus non-economy, I mean, it really is, it, it, I was driving through like, this is like a, a, a horror movie. This is like with the zombies shuffle out at night and you fight for your life alongside Charles. God, what was his name? I think, I, yeah. I, I, I think everybody has a story like this. I mean, yeah. for me, you know, in New York, we have these valets, you know, where to process some, um, um, packages or cleaning clothes or whatever. And, you know, it's very cordial, right at, right during this crisis, they put that glass up that you're talking about this, I don't know what you want to call it, sneeze proof glass or whatever. And it's created this, this barrier where it used to be so friendly yeah. and it's almost like it's adversarial now. And the last time I saw that, because I'm from Detroit, the last time I saw that is at a, at a drugstore in, in downtown Detroit, and the, the you know the glass is like this thick, you know, so, so an AK-47 can't shoot through it. You know? So, I mean, you know, so I mean, it's like, will this? Do you think that these these this glass partition will go away after, let's say, twelve months from now, or do you think that this is a permanent feature of our lives? Well, let's let's talk about the things that aren't going to change, that the permanent changes, because there is no. There's no post-COVID world. I mean, that's my prediction. I mean, Air Canada just lost a billion dollars, right? I mean, hotels are shuttered all over the country. People's, people's lives, their businesses, their livelihoods, their life savings are just being swept up in this maelstrom of this China virus. And it's brutal. Uh, you know, it, it's absolutely appalling, of course, that small businesses are being shattered and large businesses or not, that is a massive wealth transfer to the richest 
uh, of the rich. That's just appalling. You know, that somebody was, somebody had a tweet like, isn't it amazing that coronavirus hits churches and gun shops and small businesses, but leaves planned parenthood and large businesses completely alone? And it's like, yeah, there is a political component to all of this that is truly appalling, and I guess ridiculously unexpected. But I don't think that businesses are going to go back to big meetings where they can be avoided. When I was in the business world as a software entrepreneur, I would travel sometimes two weeks a month because people were just like, hey, man, I got to look you in the eye before I drop $100,000 on your software system. We got to shake hands. I got to take you to dinner. I got to see what happens when I expose you to a rude comedian. I got to get a sense of who you are. That's got to be an eyeball thing. That was kind of old school. And, you know, part of me was like, hey, I'm a young man. I'm not married. I love business travel. I mean, I got to stay at beautiful hotels and went all over the world and it was a great experience, but it's not hugely efficient. I mean, from from a human resource standpoint, from uh, an environmental standpoint, from a general resource standpoint. So I don't think that people are going to go back to, hey, man, I got to look you in the eyes and (laughs) stare down the maw of death by shaking your hand. I think people are going to figure out how to do this stuff remotely. And I think that is not coming back in the way that it used to. I think that we're going to see, it's going to be a long time before people get real comfortable going to foreign countries for fun and recreation. I think there's going to be a lot of stay staycations. I think there's going to be a lot of maybe some driving vacations and so on. But even then, people are like, you know, I've seen those blue light examinations of the fetid underbelly of a uh, motel room. And it's like, I don't really want to sit in everybody else's squishy coronavirus ex- effluent, right? I mean, I don't mind going in, but I'm going in with a flamethrower first. And I, I think people's habits are going to fundamentally change. I think businesses are going to find it really hard to get people back into the bioweapon cubicle farms that characterized most of sort of post-1980 business. I think um, I think scattered offices, I think working from home, I think that's going to be kind of the way. And another thing I think that's going to change is, and I posted about this on Twitter today, and I want to get people's thoughts about this from the audience as well, like what's going to change. But I think one of the things that is 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 not really going to return to the way that the boss things like dating and so on people are going to spend a lot more time getting to know each other online casual sex of course becomes much more hazardous and more dangerous i think std rates are, are going to go down i think that it's really tragic how people are going to feel nervous going to visit their parents uh, if their parents are old in old old age homes going to be a lot of changes to do with that and on the, on the plus side, though, I think people are differentiating the extraneous from the essential, right? So people are saying, you know, do I need a 75-inch TV? Do I need, like all of the stuff, all of the stuff they spent money on, and now they're running out of money. You know, as you know, 60% of Americans can't cover a $500 bill, and, you know, more than half have, like, virtually no savings. And so I think people are going to say, well, we kind of lived like nothing bad would ever happen. You know, this is, I was always raised, man, keep six months salary in the bank. Like, you have to. That's like... You've got to. Like, this is not a nice to have. That's a have to have. And people have been living this razor's edge wire. Like, nothing bad is ever going to happen. And now that something bad has happened, and uh, it's not going to just be magicked away, be waved away. And now people are having to grow up considerably quickly. Because now you're in a situation where there aren't any easy answers. There aren't any easy answers to this. And people are like, well, one death, you said it earlier, like one death is too many. I mean, I get it. It's kind of something you have to say. It's a nice sentiment, but it's not true. I mean, we know this from just the fact that we don't have a speed limit of five miles an hour on the roads, right, which would save tens of thousands of lives a year just in America. We are constantly having to make hopefully mature and adult and balanced decisions. Yeah, we're going to have to end the lockdown. We're going to have to go back 
to work and people are going to get sick and people are going to die. And there's simply no way around that because if we stay home, more people are going to die. I mean, and also people are going to go insane because we're kind of like the active ape, right? We want to get things done with our lives. So all of this wish fulfillment stuff like, well, I want a world where we have the economy running with the China virus, but nobody gets sick and nobody dies. It's like, well, then you're not like even remotely mature enough to be part of the conversation. You know, that's like saying, well, can't we just can't we just summon some unicorns to solve this? You know, it's at that kind of level. So that's what that's that's, that's what Silicon Valley does all the time. (laughs) (laughs) No, but this this basic thing that there there is no easy answer to this. There's no magic solution. I don't think there's going to be any kind of vaccine anytime soon. I mean, human beings, I did some research on this before the show, Paul. Human beings have been working on vaccines for about a thousand years. It actually started in China, as you can imagine, right? People have been working on vaccines for about a thousand years. We've had modern science on it for more than a hundred years. And you, of course, you know, as well as I do, exactly how many coronavirus vaccines we've successfully developed. And the answer is yeah. zero. 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 Right, exactly. I mean, there's a lot of points that you've made that are, are excellent. Um, in terms of the landscape that you, you foresee, it's going to be huge, huge deflationary effects in commercial real estate. Commercial real estate is going to be hit hard. Um, there's going to be this push for employees to start being at home. So there is this psychological and philosophical discussion that needs to be made. Where is the boundary between work and personal life? See, it's like now they're in your home now. You know, before it was like they got you with the check, you know. So you get in your car and you're, you know, swearing up a storm while you're getting to work. But, you know, at least you could close the door when you get home. And, you know, at least that's your abode. And, you know, you try to, you try to have a boundary, you know, away from work. Well, now if everyone is working all the time at work, that that work-life balance, you know, some people like that, but I mean, I personally would not, you know, want to be constantly worried about work at home. But you know how beautiful it is. I mean, I actually started this show because I had a really long commute. I mean, this is, so this is kind of like, so for me, like I, I had a commute of at least an hour if traffic was relatively okay. I had a commute of at least an hour uh, each way. And... Wow. I wanted to, so I started recording in my car because I'm like, well, I've had a lot of thoughts over the years. I might as well put them down. And it's this new thing called podcasting. This is back in 2005, right? And so not having the commute is staggeringly great for people. I mean, this is a, it's, it's a huge gift. It's a huge gift of time. It's a huge gift of health. Hopefully people aren't just going to be sitting in a Barker lounger for the same two hours, right? But they're moving around a little bit. They are really getting an extension in life here by not having to spend a part-time job's worth of driving around. They get to save the gas money. The, the world gets to save the pollution stuff. They might not need a second car. It, because they're not driving to work every day, we don't need to use the car up as much. I mean, you can make a car last for a long time. My first car I had for like 13 years because I'm like, oh, I don't want to drive it. I can use the I can use my uh, I can use my bike, you know, because I didn't want to buy the car. I just had to kind of get it for, for business. But you can really make a car last a long time. You, you get two hours extra a day where you don't have to commute. Uh, e- even 
you know, the beauty commute, right? So, you know, obviously you're beautiful to begin with, but for a lot of people, right? Like you got to do a lot of, you know, stuff. Like it's weird voodoo that goes on, but like arc welding and, and demon summering and, and something like that. I don't know what goes on in these women's bathrooms, but uh, apparently it's quite transformative. And now you've just got a makeup button on your webcam kind of thing and you're done, man. So there is, a, I mean, there are some real upsides to what can happen in this kind of stuff. And I also hope that people remember, like if you've just spent like two months on, on your own, you might not want to break up with your next girlfriend or boyfriend. You might want to just, you know, put that little extra effort in to make it work because we're all living like we live forever and nothing bad ever happens. As I mentioned before, one last thing I wanted to mention that I think is important and it's a bit of, it's a real downside. So I posted this on Twitter, like you and I, we have interesting jobs. I love, I mean, look, I have a chance to chat with people like you to thousands of people. And like, it's a real, it's a, it's a glorious thing to be doing with my life. And, and I'm so utterly thrilled and humbled and pleased and proud that um, the world has given me the opportunity to use my talents to just about their maximum. And it's a real privilege and an honor and all of that. So for me, it's like, mm, if somebody stopped me from doing this, that would be really bad. However, this is the first job. Well, no, it's not. It's one of the few jobs I've had in my life that's like that. I liked being an entrepreneur, although it was pretty, uh, pretty exhausting in, in a lot of ways. But there's so many people out there you know, they've got IQs in the 80s or the low 90s, and, you know, maybe they can make it to junior waiter or, you know, their busboys or their, you know, parking lot attendants or security guards or their moving boxes and stuff like that. More power to them. You know, absolutely great. It's it's wonderful that these people are around there. But by God, if they could not do those jobs and get paid, I mean, that's why lotteries exist. Like, I don't play the lottery at all. And I certainly wouldn't play it to say, God, I can't wait till I can win the lottery and stop doing this stupid philosophy stuff. Like, that would be terrible. I want to do what I'm doing. You want to do what you're doing. And there's massive swaths of the population who really don't like what they're doing, and they just work to live. And so now I'm hearing this from hiring managers who are contacting me saying, you know, I'm going to go back to work. I'm getting ready to gear up. But half my employees don't want to come back because they're on unemployment insurance or they got a stimulus check or, you know, their parents are bailing them out or like something's happened where they've got an income. Usually it's from the government and so on. And they're like, I, I can ride this for at least a year because if I get up and can't do something productive with my day, that's a bad day. But for these guys, and I don't mean to over-stereotype, like maybe some of them are learning Mandarin and so on, although I, I wouldn't put a lot of money on that. But these guys are... Um, you know, waking up uh, noon, <laughs> waking up at the crack of noon, as the old Tom Waits song goes, right? They're waking up at noon. Uh, they might, it might be a wake and bake situation where they uh, light some green. They uh, they might play some Xbox. They might watch a little Netflix. They, you know, whatever it is. Like, that's a pretty good life compared to going into some stinky underground parking lot and being yelled at for people because they can't find their ticket and they don't want to pay full price. Or going in and answering the phones in a complaint line or standing with your feet aching all day in a retail store or something like that, right? They, they're they really thrilled to not be doing what they're doing. And I think trying to get those people back into the economy, and there's a whole other swath of people who are like, screw this, I'm taking early retirement. Now, that could be a lot of human capital that's just walking out the window. 
And of course, I think real estate is going to take a crash, not just because people are dying, but because people are going to consolidate, people are going to get married, and people are going to stay married. You know, you go through something like this, and suddenly the fact that your spouse keeps hiding the TV remote in your own mind suddenly doesn't seem that important because, you know, you've kind of stared down the tunnel of death. And now maybe it's like, yeah, I think we can work things out because, you know, I don't want to go through the next pandemic wave alone. So I think real estate, domestic real estate prices are going to go down because immigration is hitting a bit of a hot pause at the moment. That's going to cause a collapse in real estate prices too. Mwah! Like, thank God that's going to happen. And I don't care if the banks suffer. In fact, I kind of like that the banks suffer as far as that goes, because it means that people can start afford to having families that can invest in in the continuation of our culture. I think this is all wonderful stuff. So, you know, I mean, these kinds of changes, it's like all things in life. There's a lot of tragedy. And in amongst all of that tragedy, there, there is some real gold that we can grab onto. I mean, the last 20 years or so, the idea of you had to have a dual income, maybe 1.5 kids and a dog, you know, thing. Do you think that there'll be more family creation in, let's say, Canada or the United States now? Well, we just had, we it's just had be a, just like one, one, you know, one person working. Yeah. So we've just had, I mean, I call it a scythe buy. I don't know if scythe you've ever buy. like a scythe buy, you know, like the death scythe. You know, death oh, has okay. this like hook scythe that, you know, right, the guy yeah, with yeah. the black cloak and he's got this scythe, yeah, right? Yeah. So to me, a scythe yeah. by, I don't know if you've ever had one. I've had a couple in my life where it's like, whoo, this close, man. Like the bullet had, right? <laughs> this close, whatever it was, right? I mean, I've had a couple of them. I was in a car crash where but, the car yeah, flipped and, and went upside down and rode on a gravel highway with like truly interdimensional hyperlink hand solo sparks. And the whole thing was like, they said uh, when the cops came by and they tipped the car over, we said we didn't know whether to pick you up for crashing or littering because the thing was just a crumpled wreck. And I walked out without even a scratch. And I've had a couple of things like that in my life. That's called a scythe buy for me, right? Now, the, the whole yeah, world before, is... Before, before, before yeah, yeah. I get good there, my, my scythe buy was I was walking from work. Uh, it was in the evening. I wasn't really paying attention. It's in New York. And a lot of people get hit by buses, you know? And if you get hit by a bus, you could die from it. You know, pretty, I mean, it, they're going... Or worse, you, know, if you could stay yeah, alive yeah. and... Yeah, right, 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 exactly. Well, I wasn't paying attention and I, and I was walking right at that edge on the corner and i had a new york hat on and the tip of the hat hit it Oof. just hit it and i was like oh my god i mean it's like so you're only talking about that much of space yep. you know yeah because it was just the tip of the the baseball cap that hit but uh Oh, yeah, no, no. We've, we've all had those. Everybody who stepped out has had a couple of scythe buys. Now, the whole planet has just had a scythe buy because we've all sit there and said, OK, well, you know, there's this thing. Uh, it has, I don't know, whatever the death rate's going to be, somewhere between 5 and 15 percent. Uh, it's kind of floating around. I mean, good Lord. I mean, Paul, I was in Hong Kong in September, for God's sakes. I mean, I was shooting a documentary out there. You can find it on YouTube. It's a little tricky, kind of like playing hide-and-go-seek with, with a, a documentary. It's called Hong Kong Fight for Freedom. But, you know, if I'd been there a couple of weeks later, could it could have hit me, right? And I'm not in a terribly high-risk category, but I'm not in the lowest-risk category either. And so we've all just had a scythe buy. So I think what happens is the scythe buys, they're the zoom out, right? Like I had this when I, when I got cancer, right? You have this zoom out. Where you say, okay, every day, you know, I'm having some cereal for breakfast. I'll do a little bit of work and I go to some exercise. And, I, you know, right? and then you're just trundling along. And there's this big swath in the middle of men's life. Because we don't have the big markers, right? I mean, we, we get balls 
and then the balls drop and we die. Like that's that's about it, right? Like we have this big bit in the middle. I mean, you and like I at least I went bald, which was some kind of time marker for me. But I'm basically the same now. I weigh the same now. I have the same level of energy now, pretty much from when I was 20. Now that's that's 34 years or whatever it is, right? And so we we don't get these time markers in the way that women do, right? Because you know, women, the hair's going to grow maybe a little bit younger. They hit the wall at 30. Like, there's a lot of time markers. They're eggs, and then they they, they got uh, they got to check their FSH levels if they want to get pregnant, and then they get menopause. There's a whole lot of stuff going on for women that's like time, 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 time. And we don't have that as men. What we have is the scythe bias, which is when we used to have more risky jobs. That was kept us more deep, you know, like you're walking on the Golden Gate Bridge building, and whoop, yo, could have just right, died there. Right. And so I think that the scythe bias is when we get this sense that these days are going to run out, you know, because it kind of feels like this endless bead, you know, dum, 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 these days that just go on forever. You get the scythe by and mortality is like, like right in your face. And that's what, so people are like, okay, this is when people change. Like a friend of mine thought he had testicular cancer. It turned out to just be a UTI and he quit his job and he started his own business because he had a scythe by And he's like, man, I got to do something with my life. And he was just trundling along in some dull career. And he's like, boom, you know, I got to get things going. So I think that people are going to have a bigger view of themselves. And one of those bigger views from yourself is, you know, what's your legacy going to be as a human being? Okay, so maybe you're in the top 1% of 1% and you can create great songs or great movies and people can remember you that way or whatever, right? But that's not really you. That's just your talent. But, you know, the relationships we have, the kids that we have, the impact that we make on the world... That is some, that's a footprint that really can't go away, particularly kids. So I hope that people get this scythe by of COVID and say, okay, uh, it's time to grow up. It's time to get serious. And it's time to start thinking about my legacy before it's too late. Mm -hmm. I, I totally agree. And I'd extend it just one step further. It's like, it's not just about us mm -hmm. or egoism. It's about helping others. It's about teaching. It's about caring for people you know, the elderly and all this, you know, I, you know, it, I think we've been so, we've been living so egotistically in this, you know, in this, in this realm, pre Wuhan realm, <laughs> um, you know, but you're right. You know, it, 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 the best way to look at your life is almost as if you're dead and, yep. and, and, and go, well, what would they write in the paper? you know right. you know was yeah, really so, good at call of duty <laughs> yeah right well hey you know <laughs> <laughs> but but you know i it, it's important it's 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 important to reflect this is a great time to reflect yeah. and improve on our lives um unfortunately i don't think too many people are her taking that opportunity. Well, we're going to remind them. We're going to remind them. And I've been thinking a lot at this, this about my really ambivalent relationship with the world because I, I wouldn't say it's quite a love-hate relationship with the world because that's just much too narrow. It's much wider than a, <laughs> a love-hate relationship. I do love the world and I really want the world to be rational and so on. But the world often treats me and philosophers and thinkers like absolute garbage and, and is willing mm -hmm. to sort of malign and slander and attack and insult and so on. And so I, I'm really working on <laughs> trying to accordion these extremes in my life down just a little bit to try and get things a little bit more in the middle because, uh, and especially for me, right? I mean, it may be the case for you as well, but I mean, you're a younger man than me, but by God, I have spent now close to 40 years. I started about the age of 15 or 16 when I first cracked the mind rant. 40 years or so 
warning the world about communism. You know, I, I put this documentary out at exactly the same time as SARS-CoV-2 got out of the Wuhan lab. Yeah, I'm going to say it. Come on, most of the 17 intelligence agencies agree this is not man-made. Okay, so when this thing got out of the uh, SARS-CoV-2 got out of the Wuhan virology lab, it was almost at exactly the same time that I released a documentary saying, by God, China is the most dangerous totalitarian state in the world, and we've really got to be careful, and we've really got to wake up to the dangers of communism. Now, this was coincidental. This could have been helpful if it hadn't been so suppressed. But this, uh, 10 years ago, I, was, I did an interview with Gordon Chang about how dangerous China was and China's growth towards totalitarianism. I've done presentations on China and how dangerous it is and how unstable its economy is and how it's predatory. I've done shows on how it's taking over places like China, like uh, Australia and, and, um, and the west of Canada and Africa in particular. I mean, so, you know, and people are like, you know, what do you get? You get slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, right? You get you get called a racist, you get called a cult leader, you get called a crazy person, you get called a Nazi, you get, and you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm on the top front fold of the New York Times, three pictures of me about how I radicalized a young man into getting a job and a girlfriend, because, you know, that apparently is the worst thing in the world for people in the New York Times. And people are just like snapping all this stuff up and they're like, yeah, I'll give three bucks to the New York Times. Yeah, that's great. You know, let's let's go and click on their ads and give them revenue because they really are slamming this guy because the New York Times is pretty pro-commie, right? So for me, it's like, I love the listeners and I love the people who support what it is that I do and I love the potential and I just, in, in the abstract and in the immediate sense, I love the world, but there's the stuff in the middle. All of these people who you know, marked and attacked and, and tried to slaughter and in some ways did successfully slaughter my reputation, particularly over the past 50 years I've been doing this kind of show. And I'm really trying to avoid the, I told you so, like I'm really doing my best to avoid that because man, is it tempting. I could do three a three day straight show and, and then I told you this and then I told you that and then you went and gave more money to the goddamn New York Times. Uh, instead of listening to the people who actually knew what the hell was going on in the world. And everybody who's used the phrase McCarthyism like it does anything other than identify a guy who actually unidentified or did not identify enough the number of communists in uh, government. And people who mock uh, Diane West uh, for the Red Thread and other things that she's done and, and, and the John Birch Society and other people who've tried to warn people about communism for low these many years. And yes, of course, we get called Nazis and the communist tactics of calling us racist is in full flower and full display. And yes, you get deplatformed and your source of income gets attacked and your reputation gets attacked and your family gets attacked. And then when the Chinese goddamn virus hits, God, I hate being right, Paul. I really, really hate being right. And it didn't manifest exactly in the way that I thought. But then, you know, I wasn't really aware of the fact that Dr. Fauci and the American government from hell was funding uh, a, a lab into how they could gain a function coronavirus from bats to human to hell itself. And, oh, Obama shut it down. We can't be doing any of that. Oh, no problem. We'll just get Dr. Xi over there in Wuhan. We'll get that stuff booted up right again. You know, like after 9-11, when it's like, oh, torture, we can't we can't do that. Oh, that's no particular problem. We got Turkey. We got Saudi Arabia. We got other places, maybe Libya. We just go extraordinary rendition and torture the hell out of people out there. And so, whew, it's given me See, some what, chances to reflect as well. You know, being, you know, raised under Reagan, you know, and the whole idea of, you know, make sure that, that communism falls, you mm -hmm. know, I'm, I'm right with you on this. I mean, you, we cannot have a major superpower like, like China 
um, perpetuate this government, this, this type of government system across the world. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of the schools in the United States, I don't know about Canada, but you know, a lot of the schools in the United States, they're, they're very social very socialistic yeah it's the same on, on the on the you know on the verge of communism yeah and there's you know a small pocket that are you know hardcore communists and I'm, I'm i'm talking about harvard you know there's stuff plastered all over the place it's communist so i mean it's 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 not a good thing it's not a good thing at all blink three and times we, we if they have it. epstein tapes of you okay Right, right, right. Yeah, Harvard gave Ep- <laughs> Jeffrey Epstein his own bloody office. He visited there like 40 times. And, and one of their professors it, just got arrested for basically refusing to tell everyone about his ties to China. Right, right, right. So, you know, Lieber was, you know, Lieber was was caught, you know, with having a China connection, being part of the Thousand Talent Plan. And hiding it. Uh, and hiding it. But there's multiple, there, there's multiple professors, though, that have been somewhat tied to to epstein at harvard and even at mit because his foundation or whatever his his uh hedge fund was you know donating a lot of money to these to these different departments so you know there there's a lot of corruption in the in these universities not everybody at the university is corrupt not you know not all the students are communists and stuff like that yeah but you know but the thing give them some time But but it's usually the undergrads, you know. But 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 the, but the but the problem here is is that there is this. It's not just the uneducated that that's gravitating to communism. There is an educated class that's gravitating to communism. That's to me very scary, and we have to counteract that with quote rhetoric, you know, and discussion in the public square to say no you know, democracy and civil liberties and capitalism. And, you know, these are, this is a better way forward than to have a bread line. Yeah. The problem is that we don't, you know, we don't own academia. We don't own government subsidies and, and benefits. We don't own Hollywood. We don't own the news. I mean, it's, it is a David versus Goliath if Goliath is 4,000 feet tall. So it doesn't stop me from the fight. In fact, you know, all, all the more honor if you win. But I am increasingly of the position, though I'm not final there, that, you know, the age of arguments may in fact be over and it may just be like preparing people for what could be a very war? grim battle. Well, so you're saying war. <laughs> well, I mean, that's that's how it generally plays out. I mean, communists are pretty relentless, right? I, they don't sit I, there and I say, think, oh, I, you know, wait, you've quoted von Mises? Yeah, you know, that is actually a really good argument. I guess without the price signal, right? They don't they don't do that kind of stuff. I mean, and I say this because I try and go give speeches and like I stare down the communists who've come to attack the people who've come to hear philosophy, attack their buses. I've had speeches shut down because of death threats and bomb threats and all that kind of stuff. These guys don't play. You know, when I'm giving a speech in New York and they're out there in the street chanting, uh, you want a red pill? How about a lead pill? You know, a bullet? I mean, they don't play, man. I mean, and and I don't know why people are thinking that this is going to be some, like, maybe we can talk our way out of this, but it's going to take a hell of a lot of people waking up pretty damn quickly. And this is why I hope this scythe buy is going to wake people up. And, you know, it may not cut your throat. Hopefully it'll just cut the visor and you'll actually see what's going on in the world. Mm-hmm. 
But it goes I, to I gulags. A, they go to gulags, man. That's what they do. You should. I don't know. Have you interviewed Jeffrey Prather? No. So I'm oh, just running through you know, my four thousand people I've interviewed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I haven't. <laughs> do you know who he is? No. Okay. So he, he's uh, he's an older gentleman now, but he he's an ex-military guy, and has uh, special force forces, and he he worked in the agencies in the United States. I was on a on a show with him, a small channel, but we were talking. He's a, he's a wealth of information. And if you could get him on your channel, you you, sh you should talk to him about. But he, he he's he talks in depth about how the military at, at SOCOM, the special operations, um, views China and how they would how they would um, counteract in Africa with with Afcom, what would happen in the Middle East um, and in in the Pacific. You know, he he went into detail about about this, and it was it was fascinating. To, to, and we we came to the conclusion, and I think he's right that. You know, we're we're talking about in around 2025, 2024, there's going to be some sort of conflict between the United States and China, where we're we're lobbing missiles, not you know. Well, and that terrorists. that would be that would be that would be provoked by the communist element within the United States, which always provokes and then uh, cripples American war effort overseas, right? So they will always try and provoke uh, conflict with another country, particularly um, a third world country, and then they will prevent the American soldiers from being effective. And we saw this all over the case in Vietnam, where you had micromanagement at every conceivable level under supply. And uh, because communism wants to get, in particular, white Christians killed, because white Christians are the ones most skeptical of communism. Jesus and Karl Marx are really much at opposite ends of the ideological spectrum. And so a lot of American foreign policy is provoking attacks that can draw because, you know, I mean, it, it's not like um, most most of the soldiers are uh, Christians and certainly white Christians. I mean, there's a lot of blacks and honorable blacks and Hispanics, but mostly Christians, right? And so uh, Christ has always been the traditional enemy of communism. And so they the war would be, of course, to try and get as many Christians uh, killed uh, as possible. And um, that to, has seemed to me to be particularly the wars that America's been involved in post Second World War has all had that particular effect because it can't win a damn war to save its life, even though it has the most powerful military in the world, because the purpose is not to win the war, but to kill as many soldiers as possible, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, if you look in the 80s, you know, you had Thatcher, you had Reagan, you had John Paul, you know, the Pope. So, you know, you had this trifecta that was against communism. Yeah. You don't have that right now. I think the Pope you know, the is head of Karl Marx's ass yeah, in general. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, know, you know, so you just like, we, there, there's, we need to kind of, this kind of sounds cliche, you know, since I was kind of raised in the 80s, you know, as, as, a, as a teenager. But, you know, it, it, we kind of have to go back to the 80s, you know, go back to the music, <laughs> you know, and, you know, and, and, and some of the things that were, that were unique at, at that time, um, allowed for the fall of communism. I, you know, it's... Well, I, I think there's, there's so much to be done domestically, sorry to interrupt, but, I mean, stop funding these universities. For God's sakes, why on earth is Harvard getting all of this funding when it has a multi-billion dollar endowment fund? Like, I mean, it, it's crazy. It's absolutely mad. You've got to stop funding. A university should be paid for by, you know, 5% of someone's earnings post-university after they graduate. Because that way, the universities aren't going to give people useless degrees that bury them in debt. And once you get universities that pivot towards more productive arenas, 
right? Like medicine, like um, uh, research, uh, STEM fields, and so on. It's really tough to inject a whole bunch of Marxism into a physics course. And so you have to stop with these useless degrees, which are toxic to the culture as a whole. And the only way to do that is to return universities back to the free market and stop with all of this uh, garbage that is being pushed in lieu of an education to straight up indoctrination. I mean, the number of emails I get, Paul, you probably have some yourself of people who are like, you know, I disagree with the professor, but you're not allowed to. You know, like if, if you raise any question about what's being taught or you have an alternative explanation and so on, well, you're just a racist Nazi and you're going to get failed and nobody's going to talk to you. And that's like really, they're not teaching thought, they're teaching conclusions, which is propaganda. They're teaching not how to think, but what to think, which is terrible. And that to me, like people think that the, the, the communist danger is in China. Oh, God, no. The communist danger is domestically and not just in America. You know, this is this this infiltration and this um, corruption of public institutions. I mean, the FBI, again, read the red thread by Diana West. I mean, these this did not Brennan and, and Comey. I mean, these guys from come from blood red backgrounds as far as socialism and communism goes. This is not any kind of accident that they openly stated in the 1960s. They're going to do the long march through the institutions. They're going to gain control of the major organs of uh, Western culture and Western knowledge, and they're going to just indoctrinate, indoctrinate, indoctrinate. And you can't, you know, y the only way to do is stop, fun stop funding it from the government. Let them return to the free market and see how many people want to go into debt for $50,000 to be taught that uh, Mr. Burns is some real caricature in the world. This happened last semester at, at Harvard for me, okay? Um, we were taking on a, a, a medical neural class. It was an, an um, anatomy, medical neuroanatomy. And it was in Seaver Hall, which is right next to the, um, right next to the main library in the, in the Harvard Yard. Uh, there was a presentation before we were having our, our midterm. So normally you sit down 15 minutes before the midterm, you, you study a little bit, right? Well, Professor West, he's the one that's pushing the reparations over at Harvard, yeah. right? Yeah, you know who he is. So he was doing a presentation about deconstructing the United States, and 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 you know, bringing it, somewhat bringing it down, and, and and taking that money and and spreading it around, you know, for reparations. He would not stop talking, and went over his allotted time for for our class. So Professor Rowe had to tell him to stop that we were going to take an exam and so he stopped and so they went outside you know you're talking about he's a very famous professor and you know he had hundreds of people in the in the lecture hall so they go out into in, in, you know Seaver hall is a is an older building it was built in the 1800s so it's all it's all like that old wood kind of stuff and so it kind of echoes in the hallway so they're all in the hallway and he's still talking and while we're taking the test it's just it's it, it's such a ruckus in in the hallway that Dr. Rowe, Professor Rowe, had to go out and tell Wes to shut up. But what here here's the point though is is that here are a bunch of people that are trying to learn medicine, learn biology, learn the sciences, and you had a bunch of people that are trying to deconstruct the United States. You know, and it's it's all in this little microcosm that was happening. Yeah.
And, and that's the story that you're, you're talking about right now. What's the 1619 project? It's all historical garbage, Marxist claptrap, the undoing of America. Like, yeah. you and I, as white people, are somehow responsible for smallpox blanket stuff that went on a couple of hundred years ago. But China's not responsible for COVID. Come on. I mean, ridiculous stuff. So let's do our closing stuff here. I'll, I'll just do a wee, wee little thing here to clarify my position for people as a whole and respond to, you know, the fear. And I, I appreciate criticism that comes back. But uh, I want to sort of be clear because uh, some people do think that I joined in the fear porn brigade and that's why they can't go to Starbucks. So let me sort of be clear about all of that. So, okay, first and foremost, um, I never said that the government should handle things. I'm fine with the, look, I was fine with the flights being closed. Flights being closed from China, it should have happened. It should have happened in January. Uh, it did, I guess, at the end of January. But yeah, you got to stop flights from China. The fact that flights from China are still flying into Canada, still flying into the UK is absolutely ridiculous, right? So I was fine with that. I was fine with that. Uh, that's not exactly fascism, right? <laughs> to close down flights from a place that has a pandemic. That's, you know, if you're going to call me a fascist for that, then I don't even know what to tell you. Like you're not in the realm of rational consideration at all, which is not an argument, it's just a fact. So I never said, you know, what the government should do is arrest people having barbecues in a park. Like I'm an anarchist for heaven's sakes. I don't want the government doing anything. And so people say to me, well, Sweden is, is doing it right. Well, you know, Sweden has a pretty high death rate. But Sweden also has a high IQ population, very socially conscious, a very homogenous to a large degree population and really good at social enforcement. And they are being very responsible and assiduous and so on, because I said there should be a slowdown so that we can get things ready in the hospitals. I never said the government should be in charge of it. I never made any policy proposals other than like in terms of your own personal life, it'd be really great. If you can find a way to avoid people, if you can find a way to shut things down, that's a great thing to do. So when people say, well, Steph, you did too much fear porn. Sweden's the right idea. That's what I wanted. <laughs> what I wanted was for people to voluntarily do this. Because, of course, as I said from the very beginning, that um, the real virus is communism. SARS-CoV-2 is just how it spreads. So I never wanted the government to institute this massive lockdown program that occurred. I was talking about the dangerous, and I defend, I will defend that to my dying day unless some vast amount of information comes out that's totally different. Because what we had was a bioweapon adjacent release of a novel coronavirus with some AIDS components that was coming flying in that attacked just about all human cells known to man, that attacks the kidney, attacks the livers, attacks the brain, attacks the heart, attacks the lungs. And it was dangerous as shit. And we still don't know. It is going to be the long haul, as Paul pointed. There's the sudden stuff, which is really, really important to know. But there's the chronic stuff that could go on for a long time. So this thing got out from a bioweapons lab. Now, people say, well, there's no proof for that. It's like, well, yeah, of course there isn't, because they torched the damn seafood market. They scrubbed and eradicated the seafood market to the point where they can't possibly figure out which animals they claim it came from. They destroyed the evidence. We know for a fact that they were working on gain-of-function coronavirus back to human in that lab. This is not controversial. This is directly published. We know that they destroyed paperwork. We know that they destroyed samples. We know that they destroyed the seafood market, which they claimed it came from. That is a confession. For God's sakes, this is not brain surgery. I'm not a conspiracy theory guy. I pushed back against conspiracy theories all the way. This is not a conspiracy theory. 
It came a couple of hundred meters from the lab, working on doing exactly that, and they destroyed evidence. And even if you think that's all bullshit, even if you think, and I'm not saying it was released on purpose, I don't actually think it was, though it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter whether it's negligent homicide or first degree. Somebody's still dead. But even if you think all of that's bullshit, and it did come from the wet market and blah, 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 the bats flew 900 kilometers from the caves deep in the mountains, and they flew all the way to the most polluted place on the planet because they just love sniffing sulfur, <laughs> shit like that. Okay, let's say you believe all of that. Fine. China still released it into the world. China lied about human-to-human -human transmission. China suppressed disappeared, maybe murdered, imprisoned, threatened doctors who were talking about it. China sealed itself off from Wuhan and let Wuhan fly out to the whole rest of the planet. You are locked down. You are under house arrest because China committed a crime. And this is not a crime that was optional for them to commit because they, the only reason they got into the world community, the only reason they got into the world trade organization, the only reason they got favored nation trading status, the only reason they're part of the world economy, unlike North Korea, is because they signed solemn treaties in the basic, most deep blood that they could summon in their lying, fat faces. They signed these treaties that said, if there's any kind of illness, man, we're going to be totally transparent. We're going to tell everyone the truth. That's the only way that they got into the world community and gained any kind of economic authority and power. Otherwise, they would be as starved and isolated and hungry as North goddamn Korea. So they lied. I believe they were working on it. I don't know if they were trying to find some vaccine for AIDS because they were doing a lot of work in Africa and they were worried about that. I don't know if it was some hell-sent, godforsaken weapon against all the treaties that were signed in the 1920s and upheld ever since. I don't know if it spilled. I don't know if somebody got bitten. I don't know if some idiot in the lab sold stuff that they'd experimented, animals they'd experimented on to the wet market. I don't know. And we'll never know. We'll never know. Trust me. They're very smart people. <laughs> High IQ people, East Asians, right? Chinese people, very smart. They're IQ 105, 106, particularly in spatial reasoning. They know how to bury a body, my friends. If there's one thing the communists know how to do, it's bury their goddamn bodies because they've got a lot of them to bury and they're about to have a whole lot more. So when people say to me, oh, it was fear porn. The, the, the death count hasn't extrapolated the way it was. It's like, hello, welcome to 2020 hindsight. Look at that. Are you at the end of your life? If you buy fire insurance and your house doesn't burn down, say, I'm such an idiot for buying fire insurance because my house never burnt down. It's like, the whole point is you don't know. That's why you buy insurance. If you knew that your house was burning down and you tried to get insurance, that'd be called fraud. You go to jail. Well, unless you were being investigated by the FBI, in which case you'd be promoted. So this is the basic reality. We have a bio-weapon adjacent novel coronavirus leak that scared China so much that they were running their crematoriums 24-7. You could see the sulfur clouds over Wuhan from space. They sealed themselves off and they sent this goddamn virus. They were going around the world, picking up all of the pieces of personal protective equipment they could possibly find for this situation. We don't know how many people died in China. We know that a lot of people vanished from the cell phone records, which you legally have to have in China. So we don't know. We'll never know. The great thing about uh, deaths in a communist country is it's always just some godforsaken rule of thumb. I don't know. We can get it down to a couple of million, but that's about it. So there was every conceivable reason to be concerned, to be alarmed, to be terrified. And 
now the death rate isn't so high. Why? Why is the death rate not so high? Because nothing's working. Because nobody's doing anything. Because everyone is stuck at home. And that's why the death rate is so low. What's going to happen when we recognize that we kind of need food and people are going to die? As I talked over a month ago, I said everything should be reopened. No, almost a month ago. I said everything should be reopened. That was my first policy suggestion was the government should let everything reopen and this should be a voluntary situation. So, yeah, there was every reason to be alarmed. I never told, never made a single policy suggestion that the government should suppress business or trade internally. All I said was, of course, you should stop flights from outside the country. But that's not an internal matter of government power. That's simply not allowing people who could be infected into the country. Other people in China don't have a right to live in America or come to America, right? So that was my entire, the entirety of my policy proposal was, hey, social distancing would be great if we do it voluntarily. It'll give the hospitals a chance to prepare. And then the lockdown went a lot further than I was expecting, right? Because governments started enforcing it at the point of gun. You know, you stick your nose out your window and someone comes by with a machete from the local I'm an asshole parks department, right? <laughs> so we were not, I was not expecting this giant fascist boot to stamp itself into the entire economy and nobody could leave their house. So, of course, the death rates are lower because the suppression is far lower than I recommended or that was anticipated. I wanted Sweden. And what did we get? Late Weimar Republic. Hello, Hitler. I mean, good Lord. So, yeah, the death count is lower because the fascism is higher. So I'm sorry that the government overreached. It's not my fault. I'm a podcaster. I don't have the power to hell. All right. So that's sort of my basic explication of my current position. Yeah, based on the information, it was the right call. And we'll find out. And I don't mean to say, well, I made these predictions, although I didn't personally make the predictions. I was passing along predictions of others. But, you know, there's some responsibility I have in the matter. I'm not going to completely squidge that and say, so last thing I'll say is, yeah, I made those predictions I or I amplified those predictions. And I think those predictions were valid concerns to have at the time. And I don't want to be the guy who says, well, you can't tell yet, you know, because then you can just keep pushing things out and keep, well, maybe there's going to be an illness in 14 years. So, you know, like I understand you, you can't be the guy who says, well, I made these predictions, but I'm not going to admit that I'm wrong or whatever, because down the road, there could be more. But the reality is that this ain't the flu, my friends. This ain't the flu. This is some seriously scary shit that is floating around in the air. And the fact that we've all sealed ourselves in like Gollum in the root of the mountain doesn't mean that everything's going to be fine because at some point we've got to poke our noses out of our hidey holes and go back about our business. And we will find out then what kind of lethality, what kind of history we're going to be dealing with. And it will take some time to see about the long-term effects of this thing because some people are having real difficulty clearing this thing from their system. There does appear to be some significant damages even to a lot of people who've survived. Sure, it's getting the tall poppies right now, but as we all grow, that scythe is going to hit more and more people and we'll see. And I hope, I hope to be horribly wrong about all of this. I don't know if it's going to be on the millions. I don't think so. But um, it's going to be a lot higher once we get out there in the world. And that is going to push medical stuff aside for other people. We already know that there are dozens of people up here in Canada who've died because they can't get the heart surgery they need and they just drop dead. Uh, and uh, this is what I talked about a month ago, that there's a shadow cast by COVID that is interfering with other people's health care. You know, I mean... You get, you get a toothache, what are you going to do? 
you know, well, you know, tooth bacteria can fall down into your heart and do serious damage to your heart muscles and, and so on, right? So we are going to have a lot of secondary effects that aren't even going to be seen or measured. So, you know, you can say, well, there could be a lot more people sick and that makes the death rate lower. And it's like, yeah, but are you counting all the people who are going to get sick because they couldn't get cancer treatments or cancer screening or the people who couldn't get their heart surgery, couldn't get stents put in? Are you going to count those people? I mean, that's a pretty significant thing as well. And that's all occurring while we're hiding in our holes like Saddam Hussein post invasion. So let's see what happens when we poke our heads back out and have to take the full brunt of this freight train in the face, because I think it's going to be a big deal. But the media doesn't want you getting too angry right now because they're concerned that you might get kind of pissed off at the communists, not just in China, which is the least of our problems, but the communists in the media and in academia and in Hollywood. That is the real danger. And they don't want you getting mad at that. All right, that's it for my sorry, hopefully lengthy screed. But Paul, if you wanted to take us home, I'd be happy to hear no, that, that, that was that was a great overview. And I, I agree with you. I mean, I, you know, were one of my cases uh, in, in terms of prediction, I had four of them. But my my uh, my most dire prediction was way off. But it was also, you know, assuming the worst that the infection rates were going to be way higher, that shelter in place wasn't going to work. Um, there were a lot of other factors involved, but I'm glad I'm wrong. Because I stated, <laughs> good. I stated at very, I wanted to be wrong. I wanted. But that's why wrong. you call it a high and estimate. I, right, right. right you, know, I'm, you, know, I, you know, and, but the thing is, is that, you know, to be realistic, we're only about midway in this baseball game. And, you know, it's probably not going to be as bad as we thought because nature is more robust than we anticipated. That's a good thing. But we need to learn what happened, who was involved, hold people accountable, hold countries accountable, and also use this, like you said, as an opportunity to reflect on our own lives to make it more enjoyable. Where we live a little bit more in tune to reality instead of this, this big fluff, thinking that everything's going to be, you know, peachy king all the time. Um, I like to just kind of like explain it in the path that I'm taking. And hopefully the people that, uh, that are listening that are maybe younger, maybe, you know, just finishing undergrad, maybe, you know, uh, around 20, 25, maybe in the thirties, take this as an opportunity that if you, if you have that desire to, to want to help people to maybe pursue medicine and and because what's going to happen in 16 months a roughly 16 months i'm going to start my rotations all right and so i rotations you go into surgery you go into gynecology psychiatry you know uh, um, you know all these different types of, of of disciplines in in medicine before you go to residency well, in my in 16 months, if there is this tertiary wave that we're talking about, I'm going to see the tail end of that during in my in my rotation. And you might not get a rotation. I might one not place get a rotation. you got to go, right? Right, 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 right. So you know, but then, but you know, if I procure a residency, you know, in in the field that I want to go into, which which would be general surgery and cardiothoracic. When I'm in my residency, 
if I'm right about the chronic, either the virus is dormant and then it rears itself up again, probably we'll see it during that time, or the damage that was caused in that CT scan that you showed. I'm going to see patients, they're going to say, hey, Dr. Paul Cottrell, I was a COVID-19 patient back in 2020. And, you know, and I have to tell that patient, we're going to have to take after lung health because it's caused so much damage and a cancer started to grow in it or something or something, whatever it is, whatever the syndrome is of COVID-19, there's going to be this chronic thing that manifests it similar to what happened to the chronic illnesses that were happening right after 9-11 to the first responders, mm. you know? So, they, they, so I, 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 I am trying to inspire the young to, 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 to take that path that I'm taking. And it's a long journey. It's hard. It's expensive. There's a lot of tears, but the thing is, it's, 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 it's something that will help people that are in need. And hopefully, you know, they, they, they take that path, but you know, it's people like you that are raising the awareness of, of the situation and shining a, the, the light to the best of our ability on the reality of the situation. And we're not going to get it right all the time, but just being honest and, and calling it when we're wrong and calling it when we're right, you know, that's, you know, that's the free market of ideas. And, um, I, you know, again, I, I appreciate your, you know, your efforts uh, on, on everything you do, uh, especially in, in this regard. Oh, thanks, Paul. I appreciate that. And thank you, everyone who has dropped by tonight. I really do appreciate it. I think we will not get to questions. We're pushed two hours, but um, I really appreciate, uh, Dr. Cottrell, your time today. I will put the links to Paul's work. You should check it out. I'll put the links to his YouTube channel. You should also check that out and follow him on Twitter and all that kind of good stuff. Uh, thanks, everyone. Lots of love from here. I um, want you guys to use this downtime to gain as much wisdom as possible, to increase your human capital as much as possible, and um, maybe look into something you can start entrepreneurially as much as possible. This could be a turning point. You know, we have to defy death by further and fully committing to life. So thanks, everyone, so much. I'll talk to you soon.